Good afternoon, listeners. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this important episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. Almost all of our episodes are important, but I have a special soft spot in my heart for poetry. It's one of the oldest means of expression that we have, and it gives voice to some of our most powerful emotions. Prior listeners will know that prior to being in children's books, I was in divinity school learning a lot about how poetry works and gives voice to all of these emotions, and I remain fascinated by it. So our guest today is Zeta Elliott. She is a very prominent author and critic of children's literature, and she is now given us an amazing poetry collection, Say Her Name. This is a new type of project for her. It's her first piece of poetry. This is inspired by the lives and bravery of African-American women and in part by the Combahee statement. I am not saying that name correctly. I apologize in advance and afterwards. Please, all of you, will you join me in welcoming Zeta Elliott to the podcast And we'll begin talking about Say Her Name. Welcome, Zeta. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's good to speak with you today. Um, As I said in the intro, I am deeply fascinated by poetry. I don't really understand it all that well, but I'm much affected by it. And I know that it's particularly sensitive in writing that for young people. You've written so many different types of books, novels, uh, picture books, fantasy, critical work. What was the motivation for turning to this project and to poetry for this project? Well, I'm really glad that you started by saying you're not an expert in poetry because neither am I. Uh, And I I really did not ever imagine that I would write a collection of poetry. I think I started publicly calling myself a writer in graduate school, largely because I had a circle of Black women friends, and they called themselves writers, and all of them were poets. I would listen to them talk and I would read what they were writing. And I just knew that was nothing (laughs) that I could ever achieve. I wasn't that interested. I wasn't that invested in poetry. I knew a couple of poems that I liked. And I taught African-American literature as a college professor. And we always had poems included in the curriculum. But I increasingly was being asked to teach poetry. And so after my first book, Bird was published in 2008, which was marketed as a book in verse, but it is not. I was asked by the Brooklyn Public Library to do like a tribute to Shel Silverstein. And, you know, I have to say, not a fan, (laughs) but I was thinking, okay, this is, you know, rhymy poetry and silly poems and started reading his poetry. And then I, I have to say, I love kids and I love teaching. So if there's anything I can do in the classroom that gets kids excited about reading and writing and language, uh, then I'm going to do it. And so that was my first workshop for them. That would have been back in, gosh, I think either 2008 and 2009. And then again in 2018, they asked me to do uh, a three-part workshop for teens in Brooklyn in order to prepare them to present some poetry in tribute to Gwendolyn Brooks for her 100th, what would have been her 100th birthday. I got there, you know, ready to jump in, and no one had heard of Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I thought, oh, but of course they know we real cool, right? I mean, everybody knows that poem. And it was it was really surprising. So I was there to teach them to write poetry. We read her poetry. We wrote poems in the style of We Real Cool. And then I just started bringing in some other Black women poets. And I, I do find, I, I just started teaching my second online poetry class for the Brooklyn Public Library. And I find that I'm a better writer when I'm teaching and I'm a better teacher when I'm writing. You know, with the pandemic, I've had so much time at home. And initially, I thought I was going to get all kinds of writing done. And I I just wrote an essay for the NCTE blog about, you know, how those expectations were immediately dashed, pretty much. But then I did, you know, I did start turning to poetry. April was National Poetry Month. I wrote a poem a day. I started a series of poems called Quarantine Poems, which are largely depressing. But at least, you know, I had an outlet. And poetry is short. It's something... That sort of allows you to express the essence of an experience without having to be overly wordy. Uh, so I'm working on a novel and that is not going well, but the poetry is actually doing pretty well. So to write Say Her Name, it just started with that poetry class for teens and it started with two poems in the style of Gwendolyn Brooks's We Real Cool. And then I realized that that was a mentor text for me and I, I started thinking about, well, what are my other mentor texts? And, you know, for Sandra by Nikki Giovanni is a poem that I have loved for a very, very long time. Um, but I, I did have reservations and I did, I did feel intimidated because like I said, I have friends who are accomplished, award-winning, widely published poets and they write for adults. And, um, you know, I think the standard of, uh, the standard of, of poetry in the adult world is very, very high. And there is a little bit of snobbery that comes with that and elitism. And I do kind of feel like poetry is a club that, you know, I'm never going to be able to join. But then at the same time, I feel like poetry is for everyone. Poetry is for everybody. And if you read a poem and you don't like it or you don't understand it, that's okay. Because <laughs> guess what? There are other poems. Mm-hmm. You can actually learn how to understand a poem if you don't at first get uh, grasp its meaning. So this, this book was a bit of an experiment for me. I, I've written poetry um, at least since I was a teenager. And I generally wrote when I was angry. So I would write poems, you know, two or three times a year. But as soon as I had a theme, once I understood what I was writing about, around, whom I was writing for, uh, then the poems just sort of kept coming in within three months. Yeah, I had about 50 poems. I think it's interesting you're talking about the roots of your writing in this form that is very closely related to your work in reading communities and writing communities. I think of books as people. They have flesh in pages. They have bones and spines. They have skin and covers. They have spirit in the words. And whether that is in reading the words with your eyes or reading the words with your voice, hearing words with your voice, But your turn to this form comes from your reading communities, your writing communities, and that really reinforces to me how unsolitary reading and writing is, yet you are teaching and reading and writing in an oddly solitary time. You mentioned the difficulty you're having writing your novel versus this, and yet also there you mentioned that historical break of those kids didn't know Gwendolyn Book. Brooks, first African-American Pulitzer Prize winner. So there's these different breaks in the reading communities, these different fissures or fractures. 
how do you do you think about navigating these so I guess the question is about the genesis of your projects is that in the communities you're encountering your experience of those communities that you're encountering what are you doing with these projects yeah, that's a really great question because I just finished doing a video cast, a live stream with the Peel District School Board, which is part of uh, the greater Toronto area mm-hmm. where I grew up. Uh, and I was, there were a lot of things I wanted to say, but I knew that I couldn't say all of them. And so I was trying to very diplomatically say the school board, the school board today has a problem with racism specifically with anti-black racism. And it's a part of the city that is overwhelmingly black and brown. And I I regularly reflect on my childhood and particularly my experiences in school. And I never had black teachers and I never had the chance to read black authors. We weren't even reading Canadian authors. I mean, we were reading white authors from the U.S., you know, Catcher in the Rye and the Great Gatsby and To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And you've just uh, name-checked three of my least favorite books. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, in some ways, I wrote an essay for School Library Journal in February writing about how it's kind of a miracle (laughs) that I managed to become a Black woman poet and a Black woman writer because I didn't have those examples when I was growing up as a student. Uh, And when I went to the library, I didn't have them either. So... I was reading, you know, at 12, I started reading Dickens and then Dickens was my hero. And all I wanted was to be able to write like Charles Dickens. (laughs) And that actually served me well academically because I, you know, I was writing these very, in very formal prose. And, but then, you know, I got to my last semester of my last year of college and I had my first black educator, black professor named Jerry Tucker. And he assigned us uh, Jamaica Kincaid. And that just blew my mind. And my best friend, Kate, in college, loaned me her copy of Toni Morrison's Beloved and her cassette tape of Mary J. Blige's What's the 411. And like everything just came together at once. I was like, all my life, I've been making wrong choices. I am living in the wrong country. I went to the wrong school. I took the wrong major. Like, I'm going to fix all of this. I'm going to go to the United States and go to college all over again. And I'm only going to study African-American literature and you know, I started reading Alice Walker and Nella Larson, and I was just, I was in heaven, but I couldn't write like them. And it was really frustrating to me when I sat down to write my first novel at age 21, um, the first novel that I finished, I should say, and I couldn't find my own voice. I couldn't hear my own voice. And the truth was, I didn't want to hear my own voice because I still sounded like Charles Dickens. And so I had this whole process of decolonizing my imagination in order to reclaim or discover an authentic voice. And so I think when I go into a classroom and I encounter students who have never heard of Gwendolyn Brooks or Nikki Giovanni or Sonia Sanchez, you know, I'm heartbroken in a way, but I, I also see myself in them because I was that student. And, you know, the only poetry that I read when I was young in school was Robert Frost and I didn't particularly care for his poetry. So it it would have been very easy for me to tune out poetry altogether and say, I'm done with that. I'd rather focus on X, Y, and Z. And that's one of the main reasons I became an educator was because I realized that I was angry at myself for not knowing 
so many things about Black history and Black culture, but I realized as a student that was not my fault. Somebody had been making decisions about the curriculum. Somebody had been making decisions about whose voices were more valuable and whose, you know, could be disposed of. So I do think about that a lot. And that was one of the main reasons I wanted to have mentor texts. I know my first editor on the project, I was responsible for getting the permissions and it was getting a bit complicated. And and she was like, you know what, we don't have to do this. And I was like, "Uh, we do. (laughs) Like, I really need young people to read Audre Lorde's poem and then read my poem right next to it so they can see how I was influenced by her poem. I need them to read Lucille Clifton, won't you celebrate with me? Because if I had read that poem as a teenager, you know, it just, it would have radicalized me. It would have transformed me. It would have turned me onto a path and led me to a different destination. So I absolutely, as an educator, I'm always thinking about what texts can do to students in terms of their development, their curiosity, and their voice. And I recognize what it's like to be so hungry, to not even know you're hungry, for something that you've been denied and that hasn't been a part of your diet and that can nourish you in ways you just, you don't even know. You speak still as an educator and an academic about these very personal things and mentor texts, which is a bit of a technical term that yes, our audience will understand, but have you thought about your own writing as a mentor text into the future? To be honest, mentor text was not something I was familiar with until a teacher on Twitter uh, tagged me in a tweet that said she was showing students how to learn from a mentor text by reading Bird, my first published book for kids. And so I started looking into it after that because I wasn't entirely sure what she was talking about. And in some ways... I mean, when I talk about mentor texts to teenagers, when I'm talking about, say, her name, I tell them, we all know about sampling and hip-hop, right? So that when I hear a song in hip-hop, quite often, I know what they're sampling because I heard that music in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, some kids listening to it in 2020, they may not know the song. And that's okay. If you don't know the original song, you can still enjoy whatever has been created. But if you know that original song, they're signifying. That's part of the Black vernacular tradition. That's coded communication. I know when I hear that, that I can tap into the original and what I was thinking and doing and wearing in that moment. Uh, so when I think about the mentor text in the poem, in the in Say Her Name Now, I mean, I do. I think, you know, people, especially right now, with everything that's been going on in terms of police brutality and the murder of Black people, So many people have turned to social media and have tweeted me and tagged me to say, you know, this poem is getting me through this moment right now. And then they'll quote a line or, you know, a couple of passages, a couple of verses. So I do hope that uh, something, I mean, there are almost 50 poems in the book. I do hope that somewhere in there, there's something for everyone and they can carry a poem with them as a seed. And that seed might eventually blossom into something they use in their own writing someday. I like that. I'm very intrigued by, I'm going to say intergenerational, but that's still because I'm referring to reading communities, that there is that that communication across time and across reading experiences, because I do also think time is not a flat circle. Time is a slinky. Sometimes the spiral is very elongated. Sometimes it's very tight. 
but you're changed every time you read a book, even very physically, because obviously brain tissue, eye strain, heart palpitations <laughs> from something you really enjoy. Uh, you sprained your arm throwing that book across a room. But then the next time you read that piece and the time after that, because that piece changes you. So I like, I one of the things I enjoy about Say Her Name is that it is connecting. It's a The book is a friend, the, the voice, the words, what's enclosed there, what you've put in there as a person, but then also remarking on these women, lifting up these experiences and, and, and almost, I often say to people, this is my friend, this title, I think it could be your friend too. But there's even extra in here because you're writing about these experiences and trying to give voice to the voiceless in a way, in the readers and in the subject matter, to bring those communities together and extend that spiral. I hope that made sense. I feel like it's a very inapt metaphor, but it's the only thing I can come up with today. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Uh, and like I said in the acknowledgments, um, when, you, when you understand that Black women writers have a long tradition of storytelling and of creating verse and poetry and singing and making art, when you understand that that's a long tradition and you can be part of it, then you become part of the chorus, right? And that's what discourse is. That's, mm -hmm. that's your textuality. Then texts talk to each other and in the same way that human beings do. And it's another way of broadening the circle so that even if you are sitting there alone reading that book, you're in dialogue and in conversation with past generations, your mm -hmm. foremothers, other readers, other writers. I know, you know, I'm a kid who didn't have money to buy books growing up. Uh, and when I did first buy my own books in college, oh, they were just sacred. But you know what? I, I write in my books. <laughs> and I know librarians certainly would frown on marginalia. But I can remember, you know, opening a book or just recently I, I turned to one of the last pages of Beloved by Toni Morrison. And I had, I had my notes there uh, and I had written Spillers because something I read in Toni Morrison reminded me of Hortense Spillers. And Hortense Spillers was one of the primary theorists that helped me to anchor my dissertation. So I do feel like every time I open a book or every time I'm reading something, I really am. I'm, I'm looking for and then finding connections. And that's been wonderful because I am an introvert. The lockdown actually is almost how I generally choose to live my life. <laughs> I don't go out a lot. I don't like a lot of stimulation. Before the lockdown, I was traveling way too much and it was exhausting. So um, I'm okay with being at home, but there are definite ways in which I can stay connected. And some of that is through teaching, which I can do online. And some of that is reading, which I can do in my home. And this podcast right now, it's, it's wonderful to be able to talk to people about my work. It's, it's Blackout Tuesday, and there's been some confusion on social media um, yes. and a lot of Black people thinking that it was meant for them to not say anything, and that is exactly not what it's about, <laughs> right? It's about focusing and uplifting Black voices, and so it's, it seems apt that we're doing that right now. This goes back to what you said earlier about which voices were raised, which authors that were presented to you as models when you were in school. I'm so sorry, listeners, but you know me. You can drop out of divinity school, but it's still with you all the time. And one of the disciplines I learned in divinity school is something called canonical criticism, and it is analysis of the development of canon. Right. And we've had this in not, or I would say secular discussions about really what is the canon of American literature or what is the canon of, 
of what should be taught in high school. But I almost feel that that word canon gets sort of neutered in a way because a canon is powerful. A canon is what binds the community together. The canon is, is the agreement of this is the community. And I guess that's why it can be fraught when you're in high schools and thinking about this, the types of books that have been up for banning or exclusion recently in high schools. Looking at you, Alaska, <coughs> and pretty much every other damn place. So it's interesting to think about how you're forming your internal canon and reorganizing it as you read. Do you reorganize it as you encounter your readers and talk to them? I mean, the, the difficult thing is that because I grew up in Canada, I grew up reading the classics. So in high school, it was U.S. classics like mm -hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird and Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, but then we also read a Shakespeare play every year and we went to see a Shakespeare play performed. And then I, by that point, had been reading my mother's college uh, English course books, which was um, the Brontes and Jane Austen and George Eliot and Charles Dickens. And then I was just so enamored with those texts that by the time I got to college, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an English major and I'm going to study Victorian literature. Da, 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 da. So you end up on this path. The, the thing about those texts is that they never fully leave you. And I think that has been something that I've had to negotiate and will continue to have to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure many people who grew up in uh, formerly, in quotes, formerly colonized countries, you know, that process of decolonizing, right? We used to, I remember a professor in college even asking me, stopping me in the quad to ask me if I wanted to take his post-colonial literature class. And I didn't. And I didn't even know what post-colonial meant, but I just, I didn't like him. And I was like, no. And I needed that class. I really needed it. And I wasn't ready at that point to sort of take responsibility for interrogating the values of the text that I was reading. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't present in those texts. I was aware of that, but it didn't matter until it did. And then all of a sudden I realized how much I had been missing and I blamed myself for making those choices and, you know, even today, you know, somebody at the start of the pandemic was like, let's all read War and Peace. And I oh was God, like, why? wow, <laughs> that's not the book club for me. <laughs> and every so often it comes up and people would be like, but you haven't read, and they'll, you know, insert the name of some dead white guy. And I'm like, have you read Corregidora by Gail Jones? Because that is one of the most important books I have ever read. Mm -hmm. And that has shaped me as a writer. So right now at this point, I'm, I'm aware of the texts that mean the most to me, but I am also aware of the texts that shape me. And I think there's always that kind of tension and conversation between what we're forced to consume or required to consume, what shapes our taste when we are younger and then how we start to make different decisions uh, as adults. And, you know, I'm not that person. I'm not interested in banning books. I'm not saying, you know, if you want to read Anna Karenina, go ahead, read Anna Karenina. <laughs> you know, and I do still love Jane Austen. And if there's a Jane Austen film on, I will go watch it. Um, oh, I love Jane Austen, but there is nothing romantic about Jane Austen. No. She's not. Uh, this is what makes me insane, is that people 
read Jane Austen and they think it is a great romance. And I'm like, that's not about romance. That's about money. And <laughs> yeah. she is very upfront about that. And I, as a socialist, I'm like, that's right. You do need to write about money. Very much so, right? It's only a happy ending if everybody ends up with a rich husband. And where is all that wealth in England coming from? Oh, the plantations and oh, the colonies. What did I just watch about Jane Austen? I was watching some kind of a a modern take on Jane Austen and they were trying valiantly to sort of insert, oh, it was Sanditon. Did you watch that? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) I had to force myself to go back and watch it on Passport because I just couldn't, couldn't... stick with it on a Sunday night and I appreciated what they were trying to do. I don't think they succeeded, but at least they were trying. Mm -hmm. But then you look (laughs) at something like Jane Austen and you read E.B. Zoboy's book, Pride. I think that's what it's called. I have it on a, I have too many piles. Uh, And I read that and I loved it for its take and to sit side by side with Austen. I don't necessarily love every Remix, rewrite, update, inspiration. I don't know what you call them these days. I mean, you call them anything you want. But I appreciated her taking that book and making it hers in a different way. And then would be curious. I'm always curious of this. 20 years from now, there's going to be a writer who comes along and and has read that book. Maybe they haven't necessarily read Austen, although that's an extreme example. There will always be Austen movies with us. Um, but we'll have read first Zoboy's book, and then what would the remix of Zoboy's book look like? And that, that to me, is interesting also in your work, because this seems to be a time and an area and a set of topics, but also a way of addiction, for lack of a better term, that is very open to growth among different writers. I think you have a very accessible... That's why I ask about the mentor text and thinking about your readers now and encountering your readers now and encountering their responses. I guess this is a book is always bigger than the writer because there are so many more readers. Have you learned anything about your work from that you didn't realize was there from the readers that you encounter? Yeah, I think when people ask me, you know, are you thinking about anyone in particular when you're writing? It's sort of, the answer is sort of yes and no, because on the one hand, I am certainly thinking about um, young kids of color, specifically young black girls, because I'm thinking about myself and I'm thinking about all the things that I didn't know and the things that I needed and the things that I could have used when I was that age, when I was a teenager. But I also, I also think you have to realize when you're a writer that you do have to let go of your projects and... They don't belong to you in a sense once they are published and people can do things with your words (laughs) that maybe you didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are poems in Say Her Name that I don't particularly like. And I expected, I had several editors and I expected one of them to say, why don't we cut this poem? No one did. And then to sit down at a table with a group of teens and they pick out the poems that they love best. And those are the poems that I like least. So I think you have to sort of be gentle with yourself and be gracious with yourself at the same time. And I I mean, I think that's one of the really great things about writing a collection of poetry. Mm. When I'm writing one poem, there's a lot of pressure, you know, like writing a poem a day for April. So 30 poems minimum. And then I had been writing in March as well. So I, I walked away with about 50 poems. 
and a, f- a friend of mine, J.P. Howard, who's also a Black woman poet based in Brooklyn, you know, she wrote a great post. And she said, if you're doing, you know, Napo Rimo, if you're doing Poem a Day, you know, have some compassion for yourself mm-hmm. and be kind. And, you know, if, if all you can do today is a haiku, that's all right. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow you'll push yourself a bit harder. Um, so a lot of the poems that I wrote, you know, I never finished them, but I went back and looked them over and I could see the patterns emerging and I could see myself evolving. And I think when you have a collection of poetry, there's, if you push yourself, like I tried the Villanelle and the Tanka and sonnets, I don't generally write sonnets ever. I don't know if I ever will again. I don't know that that's a form I actually, you know, care to improve in. But the idea that you could let yourself try something without the expectation of being perfect. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Say Her Name was my 36th book. And when you get to that point, when you accept yourself, accept who you are as a writer and know that that is not going to be the last thing that you write, then you don't have to be too precious about it. You know, mm-hmm. you can sort of say, I've never done this before, but I'm going to give it a try. And then I'm going to talk about the fact that, you know what, some of these poems aren't that great, but I put them in here because maybe they'll mean something to someone else. And maybe I'll look back on this book two years from now when I'm a different kind of poet. Maybe I'll be a better poet. Hopefully I'll continue to evolve if I develop my, my practice as a poet. And then it also lets other people know that, you know, I didn't do this because I think I'm outstanding. I did this because I wanted to learn more about myself and what I'm capable of and how I can express and what I can express in this form. You know, when I was writing plays, I went through a playwriting phase and I wrote 20 plays. And then I, you know, before that I had been trying to write picture books and I wrote 20 picture books. And I, I think it's important to give yourself space to experiment and to fail because that's really the only way that you can come to know yourself and to appreciate how far you can go beyond your limitations. So I often say to my staff, please do not let the perfect be the enemy of the very good Uh and just let the project be as it is and have functionality. If you, if you wait for perfect or you keep fiddling for perfect, you will not get very good. You will be waiting forever. You will wait forever and you will not get out to the reader what needs to get out to the reader, to the receiver. And now I think I want to amend that based on what you've said. (laughs) do not let the perfect be the enemy of the interesting yeah because i think what you're talking about is your own mind engaged willingness to receive the engagement and curiosity of your readers and to be challenged and to be changed and, and developed by how you read your own writing how others read your writing how your personal canon changes as you go through life and as your reading communities change and develop and grow because mm-hmm. kids who are reading Say Her Name Now, perhaps you'll meet them later and see their writing based on that. Again, going back to that mentor text thing and have all of that. A new part of the spiral on the slinky. This leads me to a mechanical question. We'll see where we go from this. And this, I talk to a lot of different authors and they're all different types of composition, of writing. Marianne Hoberman walks through the woods of Connecticut composing her poems verbally. That's how she begins. I have writers who start just putting letters down on the page. 
some of them start with just the most pungent image that they have to write and write and write and write and write until they get whatever that image is out of their system. How do you begin writing? What's the mechanics of your writing? Yeah, I think actually for me, writing poems is, is quite similar to how I write novels or even how I might write a play. It does tend to be something that I hear. So I'm not speaking out loud, mm -hmm. but I can hear a certain cadence. So I usually have, it may not end up being the first line of a poem, mm -hmm. but you know, after everything that was happening uh, around Memorial Day weekend and the murder of George Floyd, you know, I, I was like, I've got a whole book of poems <laughs> that are addressing police brutality. Like, am I really, I don't want to corner the market on, on, you know, this particular skill. I really don't want to become so proficient in eulogizing and memorializing uh, black people who have been killed by police. And so I sat down and what I, what I heard in my head while I was watching TV was, I will not write another lament. And I wasn't sure how I was going to use that, but I just open a new document and I type that and then I just minimize it and go back to whatever I was doing. Uh, and that did end up becoming a poem uh, in the midst of the pandemic um, I started having some of the symptoms of COVID-19 and I emailed my GP and she was like, oh, it sounds like allergies. And I was pretty sure it was not allergies. And so I had been reading poems about the magnolia tree next door and the cardinals at my bird feeder. And then I sat down and just said, you know, what if you wrote the poem that scares you? And that became the first line of a poem, which I have not yet finished, but I got a good chunk of it down. So sometimes I would say a poem flows from a strong opening, strong opening line. When I was writing Say Her Name, I had a sort of, it wasn't a table of contents, which confused some of my editors, but I just, you know, number one, I wrote that Gwendolyn Brooks poem. Number two, I wrote another Gwendolyn Brooks style poem. Number three, I was trying to write a poem for Eric Garner's daughter. Uh, and I just, I would, whatever I had of the poem, which often was not a title, I would just insert that in this list until I had a list that was about 50. And then I went back and tried to finish them all. And the ones that I couldn't finish, I just removed from the list. And then I started, that was what I showed to my agent. That was what she sent out. And people assumed that that was the order I wanted them to be in. And I was like, no, that's the order in which they were completed. So there is some, some structure in terms of when I'm working on a collection of poems, mm -hmm. when I'm just writing for myself, it can be any little snippet of any kind of a coupling of words, something striking. I mean, I remember watching the news and the broadcaster said, people are chafing against the restrictions imposed on them. By the <laughs> yeah, da, da, da. And I was like, ooh, chafe. <laughs> I think I want to use that <laughs> in a poem. So sometimes I just hear a particular word and I can build a poem around that word. It varies. And that's the great thing about poetry is that if your friends of mine did an event on Sunday, a family day of action called We Chalk the Walk, W-E-E, -E, We Chalk the Walk. And it was all these things you could do if you were staying at home, you were observing the lockdown, but you still wanted to support the movement for Black lives. And one of the things they wanted to do was have people write poetry using eight words, you know, listen, heal, unity, justice, power. They had this list. Uh, and they wrote me and said, you know, could you write a poem that would serve as an example for what parents and, and families could do? 
And I was like, I hate writing those kinds of poems. Like I hate when you have constraints imposed upon you. But then I sat down and it was really challenging. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I got, I had two words left and I just couldn't figure out how to incorporate them. So I took a walk around my apartment, came back and sat down and then I did it. So I think with poetry, if you're writing free verse, then you really are free. So many things are possible. And I know that can be really intimidating to some folks. And I also do like haiku. I do like certain forms that are very structured, but the free verse poem just has so many possibilities. And I find you have any kind of starting place. Mm -hmm. Anything can lead to a poem. Well, speaking of that, would you read a poem from Say Her Name? Oh, I would love to. Which, by the way, gentle listeners, um, the (laughs) illustrations of this book are fantastic. Um, We will have to find a way to put a couple samples up on the page where the podcast lives. But um, Please do, because Love is Wise just absolutely knocked it out of the park. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Their palette, in particular... It's just perfect because I am not someone who actually likes bright colors. And so it was a surprise to me that Mm -hmm. a bright yellow cover actually just warmed me immediately. And I thought that's perfect. So the poem I am going to read is called Lullaby. And I don't think I need to explain why I've chosen this poem. Lullaby. Beloved, let me sing you a lullaby. Let me wrap you in a tender embrace and rock you till you sleep. Let my flesh shield yours from bigots, bullets, clinical indifference, academic aggression, and the callous gaze that sees a monster lurking inside your hooded eyes. Let me school you, fill your mind with magic, myths, and truths no bars could contain. Let me build a world where you are safe to play in the park, and swim in the pool and sit at your desk and sleep in your house and laugh in the street so that when you walk home from the store, you reach me alive. Say Her Name, written by Zetta Elliott, illustrated by Loves Wise, is on bookshelves now. We'll see you next time.